0: Hello, welcome to Liberal Europe, a podcast on ideas, politics and all things European, a European Liberal Forum project. My name is Lech Jaszewski, and I really hope that you enjoy the show. Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszewski. Welcome to Liberal Europe podcast. Um, my guest today is uh, Paul Collier, um, the professor of economics and public policy at the Blavatnik School of Government, where we currently sit. He's also a professor and fellow of St. Anthony's College. He's the author of many books including The Exodus, How Migration is Changing Our World, The Future of Capitalism, uh, Facing um, the New Anxieties, and with John Kay, Grit is Dead, Politics After Individualism. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for inviting me. I would like to start with your personal journey from Sheffield. uh, you write about parallel lives of you and your cousin in the future of capitalism. Can you tell more about this particular journey? You, you know when you, when you, uh, what you're talking about when you write about rising up. So I would like to ask you, how do you see this parallel life that perhaps was possible for, for, for you and about your particular way?
1: Yeah, well, it's it a very sort of sad story of um, unnecessary of an extreme divergence Uh, in in two lives that started so similarly myself and my cousin and uh, we were both uh, born in Sheffield which is now the poorest city in England and um, we were born of let's see my cousin her father was a uh, a painter and decorator so he he employed a few people my dad was a bit lower down on the scale um he was a, a pork butcher and grocer and uh had a couple of part-time assistants, but basically it was him and my mum were working. Both my parents and Sue's parents had in common is they my parents left school when they were twelve. So um in one sense we were both born in a city that turned out to be the wrong place, <laughs> um, from parents who'd had very, very little education and so very little opportunity. But then um at fourteen her father died and he'd been a rather authoritarian father, and um this was the nineteen sixties and uh, and so she went a bit wild and uh for the freedom from an author authoritarian, authoritarian father and uh, you know became a, a teenage mother and um whereas I you know there was no risk that i was going to get pregnant <laughs> um uh um and it's, and but we both went to to uh, st- state grammar schools because she got married very early on um uh, had a kid she left the school um whereas i just plodded on uh, in this grammar school i turned out to be good at uh, good at examinations which i suppose you could say uh, and so, uh, by a, a fluke, um, I managed to get to Oxford as a student, and then, um, and then I just sort of plodded on up there, still with this ability to to sort of pass pass things. So I won the, the university's economics prize and went on to Nuffield College, it was a graduate college, fancy graduate college, and. It then became the most junior form of teaching life in Oxford um, and then gradually rose from that. And so here I, you know, I just plowed up until finally I became a professor at Oxford and then a professor at Harvard. And now, now I'm still a professor at Oxford, but I'm also a professor at Sciences Po in Paris. So I've had a, a astonishingly successful career given where I started I'm what's called a fluke. Um because there weren 't many people doing that sort of thing even when I was a kid, but now there 's no chance at all of people born with my characteristics uh, and meanwhile sue um she became a teenage mother her two daughters became teenage mothers, and so it sort of echoed down the generations and that's that 's an astounding divergence um which was completely by chance mischance um and was completely unnecessary. There was so much that could have been done um, uh, to uh, make Sue's life better at many, many different stages, but nothing was done.
0: This is quite interesting because uh, at the same time you are... Kind of a poster child for this amazing upward mobility and success, but at the same time, you've been very modest about saying that you were good in exams. Uh, I understand that it was possible at the time if you were a brilliant student to carve your way up to to Oxford you know, professorship and so on. Um, I'm 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 thinking of Sheffield. You're you writing your book that it's very hard to to find evidence for transforming the city which failed. I'm coming from 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 which which was. Post industrial city, well, now it's post industrial city called Polish Manchester, and one of the fastest depopulating cities, I think, in Europe, actually, and definitely in Poland. And I think we are facing the very similar problem how to reinvent uh, ourselves. So, do, is there like, I, I believe that there is like the chance for individual uh, success is, just, is changing the country, changing the city, going to London, going to Oxford. But, but you can't do this with cities. What's what, what what we can do for cities like Sheffield if you want if you want to re- is it possible to reinvent those cities in the post-industrial era?
1: Yes, absolutely it is, um, uh, and there are many examples around the world where it's been done. Um, not many examples in Britain because we're so bad at it, but that's uh, we've shot ourselves in the foot there. Um, but I've in parallel worked with um, the local government in Sheffield um, and the region called South Yorkshire region which is also the poorest region in the country Um, so I've been working with them and um, the uh, it's wisdom the British government appointed me to be um, advisor to um, its its department of leveling up its ministry of leveling up so I was supposedly advising the the government nationally on what to do uh, and also working with um, this city region authority um, poorest in the country on how to how to recover um, and uh, so let me say something encouraging which is it really is possible to recover because so many places around the world have done it yeah. uh, if we look at um, uh, in Australia, so we don't even have to look outside the Anglosphere in Britain. We can we can see other places that have done it. Um, uh, so there's a, a city in Australia called Newcastle, which had a, where it was an industrial city and the industry collapsed, just like in Sheffield. but uh, it revived itself had a good mayor and a good uh, region. Of australia with quite a lot of powers and so both the region and the city um, use their initiative and their resources um, and now it's a very fast-growing city um, i'm told there are more cranes uh, in newcastle australia than there are in sydney the, you know the national capital That's so something. it's really yeah. thriving um in britain um there was an interesting study which looked at the 20 cities that were hit by the collapse of their core industries, which all happened in the early 1980s. So, 20 cities basically, the, their core industries collapsed. Sheffield was one of the, was, the was, was very badly affected, but another 19 were as well. And of those 20, only one has recovered. Right? But the interesting little puzzle is, so what about the one that recovered? It turns out the one that recovered was the hardest hit of all 20. Um, So it was called Corby. So why did Corby recover? Well, it recovered because it was so obviously very badly hit that the British government broke its usual rule. British government had a very, very, ill-advised rule, which said, we won't intervene to help places that have fallen behind. Um, The market will do it all itself. The market will revive the place. Well, markets don't. Markets make things worse. Um, I'll give you a little analogy, which is, imagine a couple of sailing dinghies sailing along uh, in a gusty breeze, Mm. and a A wind comes, a puffer wind comes, and one of the dinghies capsizes and the other doesn't. That's just a chance event. That's the chance event equivalent to losing your core industries. You've capsized. South Yorkshire capsized. Sheffield capsized. Where does the private investment go? People like Milton Friedman thought it would flood back in to this capsized dinghy. But of course it doesn't. Because... um, uh, turning a capsized dinghy the right way up is quite a difficult skill. Mm. Um, and uh, nobody in South Yorkshire had that skill of how to right, right, turn, our, turn our capsized economy back up the right way. Um, it would have taken a lot of political action uh, and a lot of uh, coordinated uh, fresh investment. And, of course, the investors, the private investors... They didn't believe Friedman's doctrine that markets Mm. will do it automatically. Private investors knew, no, if if South Yorkshire's capsized and uh, London hasn't capsized, the smart thing to do is move our money from investing in South Yorkshire to investing in London. And so that's what they did. In Corby, it was so badly hit that the British government decided, oh, oh dear, we really better break our rule of non-intervention. And so they poured big money in. They coordinated with the local government. So big public money moved in, and that shifted the expectations of private investors. And they thought, okay, um, we know with confidence that uh, this place is going to revive because there's so much public money being thrown at it. So we'll go in as well so that's the key trick um you need a public the government to move first both in uh, national level and at local level in partnership and what they're trying to do is reset the expectations of private investment so the private capital moves in
0: What I find very striking from from your books, from your writing, that you are being an economist, you write very powerfully about moral philosophy. And I find uh, quite touching, actually, that you put into the very center the sense of agency for citizens, kind of restoring uh, citizenship, I would say, in many ways. Even though you, you, you and John Kay write about politics after individualism, I would say that in some ways it is kind of restoring the power of individual, which uh, you also uh, just recently wrote a review, among others, the, the, the recent Martin Wolf's book, which is about democracy and capitalism. And it seems that in many ways, and you also write it in the, in the future of capitalism, that in the last, let's say 50 years, democracy didn't uh, succeed in constraining capitalist vices, because you are not anti-capitalist yourself. You, you make it very clear. clear. So. Can we can we start this talking about how to fix capitalism start to why why capitalism almost remained the only game in town the in town this cult of efficiency seems to be the only thing I think for many people including uh, Adam Smith which we quote uh, that would be uh, um, it would be a terrible thing if, if we talk about know, excellent efficiency as, as, as the only kind of like a moral um, like a moral issue remaining why all the other virtues and moral sentiments seems to be declining why this capitalism and and this kind of greed remains. Do you you have an answer for this?
1: Yeah, so what's missing here is a sense of community and people's agency, individual agency, to contribute to the whole within a community. Um, And we have two forms of community. Uh, Community is a place, cities, districts, where people can come together to work to some common purpose, and uh, communities of work, Uh, and a good firm, uh, whether in the private sector or or a good organization in the public sector, like the Vlatnik School, at its best, it brings people together in an environment where everybody has a degree of agency, and everybody can work together to contribute to some common purpose, which is larger than just me now. Um, and that move from me now to we in the future, we will all contribute to some common purpose. That is a, a, a big psychological leap from individualism. Um, and it moves away from the, 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 the zero sum mentality of it's the state versus the individual. Um, to say, no, there's a third force, which is we together in a community. um, I'll give you one um, simple example of that, um, uh, which is um, uh, the Rotary Club. Mm. And the, the Rotary Club is a club of businessmen. It was founded in America in 1904 by a guy called Paul Harris. And Paul Harris was a successful guy but he'd come from a small town in Iowa, middle of nowhere. And there, there'd been a strong sense of community. And he moved to Chicago, and he felt really lonely. Um, Here I am, I'm doing very well, I'm making money, I'm a successful business person. But um, I seem to be just surrounded by selfish, greedy individuals. Um, I've lost my sense of community. And so he thought, well, I better do something about it. So he put a He booked a a meeting room, a time and a place, and then he put an advert in the local newspaper in Chicago and invited people to come and join his club. And 200 people showed up. Hmm. And then he'd thought of the rules of his club. Clubs have rules, and he'd written them down. So he said, this club is not a... It's a club of successful people like you and me, but we're not going to talk about business We're not going to do deals in my club. If you want that, go and find your own club or join another one. Uh, My club is going to be about how we, the successful people in Chicago, can help the people in Chicago who are very much less successful. And Chicago at the time, as it still is, was full of people who'd been left behind by success. Uh, They were depressed, despondent, despairing, and so he said, We're going to come together and find little ways that we as a group of business people in Chicago can help them. Now he realized they weren't saints. So it wasn't, we're going to sacrifice everything, but we're going to try and find ways of helping. Um, and he did. And, then, and that then, that idea proved so successful as people moved to other cities, successful people. Uh, they set up their own version of this and then it became a national association now it's an international association um it's got something over 10 million members and it's done huge amounts of good i don't suppose paul harris ever thought about what was going to happen but that was the sort of good that he did
0: right? I think a lot of people would find this idea very appealing, especially at the time when COVID made us more lonely and, and people are craving for company, which is harder and harder to find. The internet promised us uh, numerous social networks, but it seems that people are actually rather exercising their uh, self-expression, but not necessarily making uh, lasting bonds. Um, I'm, uh, Of course, uh, at the same time, it seems that our idea of, of strong community has, has a lot of it's, well, it's an amazing asset. But uh, speaking from the perspective of the country where idea, at least nationalism is relatively strong, I would say that, well, first of all, if you belong to me- community, community, in many cases you have to make um, some compromises with regard to who you are, how you behave, um, respecting the rules of community. And I, I see that uh, in the world post 1968 uh in the west uh this this idea of, of kind of cultural individuals making individual choices very often against the rule of society was so strong that perhaps later on the Thatcherism Reaganism this idea of well individual responsibility for uh, also economic success was kind of natural to follow and i'm wondering do you think that sometimes these names you quote are kind of obscure in the mainstream of of, of uh, unfortunately of political philosophy today do you feel that it is uh, going against the tide of history in a way trying to restore something that has been has been lost uh that the, this these companies became global that it's kind of naturally almost impossible for them to become this local communities working for for the benefit of the people or do you think that this is possible that somehow not losing this sense of individual agency we might find ways to, to, to create communities without necessarily vices that made people rebel against them in the first place.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think it's at all uh, romantic. I think um, actually the tide of history is running with us, I think, here. Um, and it's, it's, you, you say, well, some of these people are pretty obscure. Um, some of them are very far from obscure. So hmm. uh, Raghu Rajan um uh the it is a, he's now top professor at chicago university um
0: of course, William James is also a classic right?
1: So yeah there are yeah lots of so people. we so yeah. we go back to <laughs> we go back in history mm. to very famous people um and uh you know, in in britain there was the philosopher Edmund Burke sort of got mm. this going and um Burke's modern successor uh is uh is Paul Robert Putnam. Uh, f- one of the most famous uh, academics in uh, mm. in America. Uh, Raghu Rajan at Chicago is, you know, he was head of chief economist of the IMF. He was central, central bank governor of the Bank of India. Um, this is not a negligible person. And he's got this book, The Third Pillar, um, which is all about the power of coming together in a community. Uh, then we've got Rebecca Henderson. uh uh, the top professor at harvard business school no less um uh whose book uh reinventing capitalism in a world on fire um uh, is very much a passionate plea for rethinking business we've had a lousy form of business the last 40 years very much influenced by milton's friedman's idea that the sole responsibility of business was to uh, make a profit um Completely wrong, and um, uh, the, the the big name here in in critiquing that is is uh, John Kay and Mervyn King, Mervyn King, former governor of the Bank of England, no less. Uh, so oh, he
0: wasn't so communitarian, I think, at the time that he was <laughs> Bank of England's. Uh, um,
1: he's, he uh, head he of most England. certainly is now. I was, <laughs> I was with him and John last week. Right, um, and um, uh, they uh, both he and John used to teach all this wretched economics um, and now teach exactly the opposite. (laughs) Um, And because they're both extraordinarily clever people, it's hugely embarrassing for the old style of economics that these guys who were at the top of it um, have renounced it and said, you can't run a business like that. John Kay's wonderful book called Obliquity is um, really the only way to run a business and consistently make profits. Um, is not to try and achieve profits, but try and achieve a really good of business. And the firms which have done that survive. Uh, the firms which don't, um, which just try and make quick bucks, survive for a while, and then they crash. Um, so if you look at the, the, the top 100 businesses in the uh, American index... Hardly any uh, that were top businesses 50 years ago are still top businesses. Hardly any. Um, The ones that are have actually adopted a model of uh, that principle of obliquity. Don't focus on the profits. Focus on the purpose of making the the company uh, something that we can all be proud to work for.
0: You you say yourself uh, in the book that Actually, among the billionaires that you know personally, basically none of them are focused on like consumerism spending, but they all have this big idea in minds it's uh, It's a question how systemically you try to fix it in a way that's you know, we, we all might uh, love George Soros, but I think a lot of people in UK wouldn't find him particularly appealing after what he does with the British pound in the nineteen nineties. But um, um, I'm, I wanted to ask you, you, uh, what I find also quite, uh, quite, quite striking is that you don't want to reduce a, a, um, a citizen to. This pure materialistic discourse. So we just give min- give people money, and that should fix things. That's I think it's extremely important because uh, a lot of people on the left think it's a question of taxation, it's a question of redistribution, inequality, and it's all very important. But but you say yourself, it's a, it's very much about also personal dignity and and the sense of agency. Can you? Um, can you can you tell more about how how for example it's different from let's say New Labour and and these ideas of reinventing the left because you also uh, quotes you also write that we should keep the Schumpeter's idea of creative um, mm. destruction but and not destroy what makes capitalism work but at the same time try to kind of employ it for the benefit of society how how is it I mean how would you place yourself in the kind of political realm of today? Would it be, I don't know, social democrats, or do you think that there's anyone politically doing what you are suggesting? You have a lot of political contacts yourself. I'm curious, how do you see how this idea might work in in practice as well? Yeah, so
1: politically, I'm completely non-aligned, That's partly because I want to work with all political parties. Um, I think all three political parties in Britain I've got it wrong unfortunately <laughs> it's very unfortunate because i live here um but um if we go back to new labor and tony blair if you remember his uh, he made a speech i've got announcing his agenda saying i've got three priorities education 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 now what did that mean what did that mean it really meant that if you're somebody like me born in Sheffield, with parents who hadn't had education, um, the thing to do was get yourself an education, do just what I did, and then leave and go where the go where the go where the money is, go where the jobs are, which is what I did. But that's a very dispiriting message. Um, very few people can do what I did from my background. Right? Um, and so it's really a message of pretty much despair, Um, nor is it desirable. Um, I spend long hours regretting that I didn't go back to Sheffield and contribute. You can contribute much more in a place rather than standing outside and uh, trying to help it. The real help is the people who stay and do stuff or go and get skills and then bring them back. Um, so uh, education, education, education um, was saying what you, want to, what you need to do is somehow get yourself to university. Well, half the kids in the country don't go to university and won't. Most of the kids uh, whose parents didn't have education and are born in South Yorkshire, most of those kids definitely won't go to hmm. university. So the message, education, 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 for them is really a message of despair. Give up. You, you don't tick the right boxes. You're not going to achieve anything. So what's much more important is not education, 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 but we will make sure that you have opportunities. You don't have to go to uh, university to get a degree. You don't have to go to Oxford um, uh, and uh, become a professor there. You can acquire a top vocational skill. You can, if you want to become a a, a, a technician somewhere, you can do that. Right? I was just discussing with the guy who set all this technology up for us. Uh, I've got a sixteen-year-old, and uh, what he really wants to do uh, is um, acquire. A good skill. He's a very smart, autistic, ADHD, attention deficit, hyperactive young kid, um, which is just the skills that Elon Musk and uh, uh, and uh, Bill Bill Gates have. Um, so, in the right context, it's useful. But what the right context means for for my kid is um, get yourself a skill. And then get into a small enterprise um, as the most junior thing in a small startup and work on it. That's mm. the future of excitement for him. We're not providing those opportunities. You know, across Britain, only 5% of the kids who go on from school get a vocational skill, a high vocational skill. Only 5%. That's hopeless
0: in comparison to germany austria
1: it's really nothing. yeah absolutely absolutely we need half of all kids like that we should be getting down to five percent the people who don't have any vocational <laughs> skills right uh, and leave school without qualifications without hope right so we've got a massive task in england uh, other countries do it much better as you say this is uh germany this is switzerland this is many countries france where i spent part of the year um very good at getting young people vocational skills that gives them pride and purpose and the opportunity to move ahead right so um poland can do it poland could copy britain i very much hope you won't <laughs> um uh, uh or you can learn from the countries around you you know um you just look around and think that's the way to go.
0: Professor Collier, I think it's a very powerful message, not just to my fellow compatriots, but also my fellow colleagues here at the Master of Public Policy and Blavatnik School of Government. Go make yourself useful. You know not just think about personal success, but think how you can employ those skills that you have, how benefit, how try to make make benefits for for more. I think we are here actually to to do this. So. Thank you so much for this conversation and for this message of hope and empowerment.
1: Thank you very much. This is what the School Schools for is preparing very smart kids to go and be useful for others. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, That's all for uh, for today from me. Uh, Please tune in for Ricardo Silvestre next week. Until two weeks, goodbye. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing, and want to help spreading their liberal values, please give us a 5 star review and share with your friends.